Hello, welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. I'm your host, Graham Culbertson, and the topic today is, is climate and climate science and climate science and direct action, I would call it. Um, so my guests today are three climate scientists who have uh, gained a certain amount of uh, infamy, let's say, or perhaps fame uh, on, on my end for an article they wrote uh, suggesting that it is time for climate scientists to stop doing science as usual and start doing what what I would say is is direct action in the in the great anarchist tradition. So Bruce, if you want to start by introducing yourself and telling a little bit about how this came to be and then we'll get uh, Ian and Tim involved as this goes along. Thank you very much, Graham. So my name is Bruce Glavovich and I'm based at a university in New Zealand and um, have been working with local communities in trying to address issues of sustainability, environmental responsibility um, in the face of climate change and other global change and really looking at the intersection of involvement of local people in decision-making around these difficult issues. And in, in short, what motivated Tim, Ian and I to write this paper was um, the product of a conversation that we had where we got together for a couple of days on an incredible part of the New Zealand coastline and thinking through how we might mobilize a new initiative that sought to um, do this work. Um, and very soon into that conversation, reached a common place of frustration that no matter what we do at the local level, there are forces beyond the local level that are often beyond the reach of local people that shape their opportunities, shape their risk and shape their prospects. And in a sense, part of what we do as climate change scientists, as environmental scientists, as activists, uh, as pracademics, is that we end up doing potentially very little other than science as usual, a bit like business as usual. And so we thought that it was really timed instead of focusing on a yet another project and chasing funding to do such work, that we continue to work with local communities to make a difference, but that we write a provocation that asks some hard questions and seeks to mobilize um, climate change scientists as one of a, a cadre of global change scientists to do things a little differently. So that was that was the origin. And this was this was back in February 2020, um, which is quite some time before the paper was actually published, and certainly a long time before the IPCC reports that have recently come out of the sixth assessment um, took place. So I'll perhaps use that as a point of departure and hand over to Ian and Tim. Okay, yeah. Thanks, Bruce. Um, my name's Ian White. I'm Professor of Environmental Planning at the University of Waikato, which is in uh, New Zealand. I, my background is in human geography and planning, and I've basically spent my entire career working with communities to adapt to climate change. Um, the messages that we know that are coming through from some of the global organizations, which then get transposed down to national levels, and, and trying to think what that means at, at scale. And how do we make those value-based decisions about how soon, how quickly, how much to adapt? Um, and so I've been doing that for now about 20, 25 years, 
really. Um, I started my career at the University of Manchester in the UK and moved to New Zealand around eight years ago now, and then started working with Bruce and Tim. And, and for me, the article is, I mean, it, it has generated some controversy, um, but I actually think the message in it isn't actually that controversial, which is there has been decades and decades of inaction. So I see it as a, a call for introspection is one of the ways I describe it, is there's no point just keep doing the same thing at the same pace with the same actors if we know that progress has been limited, if you're, if you're going to be kind. Um, and so if it is an article about introspection, then and, it, and it's a provocation, then to that end, it's achieved its aim. And, and, and then it has got much more attention than we would have hoped when we started to draft it. Um, and the question is whether it provides that stimulation and introspection with others. Um, so our role here is not to lead any you know, new shift or climate change strike, for one of a better word, is to actually provoke some introspection about how can we use the scarce time we've got for a window of opportunity in the most effective way? And is that, an, is that a seventh assessment, for example, or is it something else? And so that was our, our intention with the article was to generate that. I think a lot of, a lot of attention has been on the, sort of the climate change strike angle, but it wasn't really about that. It was about the tragedy we've seen unfold throughout our careers um, and that everyone listened to us, uh, too. And how can we, if, we, if we're going to be effective, we just need to face that and tackle that and listen to it and think, what can we do now? So we provided some pathways. And if other people can provide better pathways and much more effective, that's perfect. You know, we, we would be more than happy to, to hear what they think. I think that's probably a nice start from me and um, over to you now, Tim. Um, thanks, Ian. Yeah, thanks, Graham. I'm Tim Smith. I'm Professor of Sustainability at um, the University of the Sunshine Coast, a small regional university on the east coast of Australia. And uh, I have the same experience as Bruce and Ian, and I think that's why, you know, it was, it was actually quite easy to write the paper um, in terms of um, us being on the same page. Um, but... You know, I think um, it's it's a provocation, but it's also based in evidence. You know, so we 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 took a very evidence based approach to exploring what are our options for dealing with the tragedy that we've got. You know, so as as we've stated, you know, we find two options untenable and one option unpalatable. You know, so we're very clear about that. Um, and as Ian said, you know, if someone else can come up with an alternative option. Um, we would be ecstatic. We can't find one. We don't think there is another way forward. We think that this idea that we've proposed is basically the only thing we haven't tried. You know, so why not try it? You know, and that's, that's I guess, where, where we've gone with the paper. You know, we, we, we have this overwhelming evidence. You know, since the first um, IPCC report in 1990, you know, we've seen emissions rise um, over 60%, you know, well, it just continues to rise year upon year. And, and like, like you were saying, um, but before we started recording, I, you know, we totally agree. We're, we're just so despondent seeing this continual degradation of not just um, actions around climate change, but actions around a whole range of other 
sustainability issues. You know, we only have one planet. The planet is in decline. We need urgent action. And I think that's really the core message of the paper. So I think I, at this point, I want to go back and gloss the paper briefly, which I, which I didn't do. Um, and then you can step in and tell me what I've got uh, right and wrong. And I will also say, I'll put a link uh, in the show notes. Uh, listeners, I recommend you read the paper. Uh, I really enjoyed it. As of last time I checked, it was not behind a paywall, which is rare for academic work. I also enjoyed reading it and was able to finish in a single sitting, which is also rare for academic work. So this is the first thing to say is that Ian, Tim, and Bruce have already avoided one of the first problems academics have when they try and make a difference, which is writing something in jargon and putting it behind a paywall. Uh, so you didn't do that. So that, as far as I'm concerned, that's anarchism right there. Um, but the the argument uh, of the of the paper is that the scientific community has for decades now done a really good job of showing what's going wrong with the climate and showing that humans are causing that. And it has not made a difference in, in political reality or in policy. Things have not changed the society science contract that you discuss. The scientists provide the information and then the politicians fix the problem. And one of the examples you use is COVID, right? The scientists said, this is dangerous. And the government said, okay, we will get to work on it. So that hasn't happened. And then the three options you lay out are, option one is just, you know, keep producing evidence and producing models that show that the climate is degrading and we are losing habitable space for humans and biodiversity. That, you know, that as we've already said, this is untenable because it doesn't make a difference. Um, it hasn't so far. The second option, as I understand it, and this is where, you know, I'll let you jump in and after I briefly explain the, the third option, the second option, as I understand it, sounds good in that it says you've got to do the kind of work that Ian was talking about. You've got to go to the people and get outside of this model of science and society where the scientists do their work and then they, it goes to the politicians because that's not working. And ultimately that seems like another dead end. While it looks democratic and engaged and it is democratic and engaged, it's simply not going to solve the problem. And then the third option is the climate strike. Go ahead, yeah. So just to clarify the second option, you're exactly right. It's really about, we, we, we identify that there's been numerous times where, where scientists have got directly engaged you know, Hansen's testimony. You know, in, we, we outline in the paper that in 2019, you know, we had 7.6 million people as a minimum around the globe protesting around the climate change crisis, yet there's been no transformational action. So you're exactly right. That section option, we thought, we, we all thought, you know, that's, that's where we should be heading. But when we looked at the evidence, we saw again that was an untenable pathway. Yeah, that's a great point because when we started writing it, that's where we were. That's where we're heading. It's this shift from physical science to recognize the political nature of inaction and to try and invest more in unpacking that. And, and one of the things that I think is a good way of talking about, you know, how effective we've been is when I when I started my career, none of the major social media platforms even existed. 
Um, and now outreach on forms of social media is a daily activity for a lot of climate scientists. They do sterling work, reaching directly to communities, directly to policymakers, stimulating debates, and which is, if you'd have talked about that 20 years ago, you would have thought, well, we'd have fixed it. Because clearly, as a form of science communication, that is light years ahead of the press release of the late 1990s or, or whatever. And yet, we're not seeing that cut through into action. We're seeing the rise of post-truths, you know, um, alternative facts, and, and the, the polarization of a lot of the online platforms as well. So even though we try these new strategies, we're seeing that surely that there probably are some great wins and great examples. But as a whole, if you look at the, the global indicators of change, we're not seeing a, a major cut through there. So I'll, I will Just stop to, there. To, oh, go ahead, Bruce. Add, add, add to that. Um, I think that some have interpreted particularly when this hit the Twitterverse, um, some have reacted as, as if what we're doing is essentially criticizing science, criticizing climate scientists, sort of denigrating their work. And in many cases, that's a misreading of what we were communicating. In fact, I think as Ian pointed out at one point, one could hold up the IPCC as probably one of the most stellar examples of an interface between science and government around a complex issue. And then in the mere space of three to four decades, we've gone from almost zero scientific understanding of this complex problem to a very detailed elaboration of the physical science, the impacts, the risks, uh, and the mitigation. So just using that as an example, because whilst our focus is on the climate science issue, it's really symbolic and uh, uh, and emblematic of all sorts of other global crises that underpin um, global change. So, so our point is that actually there is this science society contract, not a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a metaphorical contract, but um, we've done what we can. We have raised awareness around the nature of this problem and simply documenting the further, uh, you know, providing further evidence of further warning providing evidence that doesn't contribute to resolution is a failure. And so even for those who have opted to march in the streets or to take direct action, that has, as Ian and both Tim and Ian were saying earlier, has not brought about political change. It hasn't brought about action at scale and at pace necessary to halt emissions and to bring about the transformative change in patterns of consumption and materialism, behavior, etc. So what do we as scientists do? I mean, we're, we need to be modest about what we can um, achieve. I mean, we, we're, we're not naive. All three of us have worked at the science policy, science politics interface. We know that our voice has limited reach and influence. But if the climate science community were to mobilize en masse and say enough now it's time to stop merely documenting the decline it is time to focus attention on fixing this broken science society contract yes continue working with your local community 
continue seeking ways to make a difference in your backyard with the people who face this reality on the ground. But at a wider science community level, let's shake to the core the complacency that exists amongst many scientists about just carrying on, chasing the next grant, writing the next paper, and and so on. And even for those who've taken to trying to apply their research in a more effective and pragmatic way and who are marching, that is itself is also perhaps not enough. Maybe what it will take is a literal call to um, to a halt of this work that is um, essentially now merely documenting the decline. So I want to hear from both Ian and Tim in terms of their vision of this third way. But I also, before that happens, I want to thank you for the, the clarification in that I, I'm, I mean, I'm a frequent critic of science, although I think I criticize the humanities a lot more. And my criticism of science is precisely the uh, the careerism, the professionalization, the chasing the next grant and doing work that um, is not communicated. And when people, you know, say like, oh, you know, these idiots don't understand the vaccines, I say to the scientists, like, well, have you have you tried explaining it to them? And they usually have it, like not in any sort of face-to-face -face way. They're like, sure, I went on NPR and I explained. And I was like, well, that's, you know, that's our public radio in America, for those of you who aren't Americans. Like, well, you've reached 2% of the population there and you haven't reached your neighbors. So the solution I, well, I just would say the solution I usually give is the kind of engaged work that you are talking about in this second option and so I was so excited to see something that was more radical and more potentially transformative than I had ever imagined before. Okay, I'll stop now. Sorry, Tim. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, like, I, I think scientists have come a long way. You know, the, the, I, 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 I just want to reinforce what Bruce said. This isn't a tragedy of science. This is a tragedy of politics and the political process you know that's essentially what we're talking about we, we lots of scientists have have radically changed their approaches to have more impact um, I don't think it's it's a problem of communicating science you know there's been so many advances in that space so I, to me it's firmly sits um, in the political realm and I think that's what we're trying to say with this and that's why we've come to the point with the third option saying, well, you know, as, as we've discussed, maybe the only option we have left is to stop doing science, you know. So, you know, what else is going to draw political action to this issue? Maybe it won't work. Maybe it will. It has not been tried. And like Ian has said before, if there's another option, we would love to hear it. One of the, one of the things I'll just add to that is I don't think our you know I don't know it's lack of hope or, or lack of faith is unusual by any degree. I mean there was an article in in Nature which surveyed IPCC authors and and I think it was about six out of ten said they expected three degrees by the end of the century, and I think that's probably reflective. There's not a you know there there is hope. But there's a realism in, in the community as well that they're not they've not seen the changes that their pace and scale required. And so the question is, if that's what you think, then what can we do differently? And and that's all this paper's around. 
I think the, the third option of the, um, of the, I don't, I, I think it, it got called the strike, but it's not really about the strike. It's about using our time differently. So the way I think about it is, is that we decide all the time how to use our labor, you know, what, what we're going to do on, on our day-to-day -day basis. And how can we best use our time to have the biggest impact, not just on a day-to-day -day level, but over a career as well, what's left of our, of our careers in this. And one of the ways that we, we started to think about, well, what would this look like? Um, could be that instead of having a seventh assessment report in five, six years time, which, you know, the sixth report was quite similar to the fifth. Okay, provided more detail. There was some excellent new science in there, but you, you know, the problem had been established and the phenomenon, you know, the, the general principles of, had been worked out decades ago. We were just getting more and more information on uh, how bad it was going to get and who was most at risk and, and the decline in those aspects, which is all really useful science. But if we wait another five or six years, what, what does that mean for the planet, future generations, um, you know, the, the biosphere and, 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 and species and all those aspects that don't necessarily have a voice? And so thinking about just, there, there was an article by Naomi Oreskes, which was quite controversial um, in itself about a, 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 year, a year ago, which was talking about working group one of the IPCC report. Uh, uh, basically, it, it's done its, its job. It's set out to establish the fundamental principles and done it excellently. So the question is, should that carry on ad infinitum or what message would we send if we, the scientists, closed that down and said, the job's done? You know, in everyday science, we respond to policymakers. They tell us what's of value. We respond to calls. We put bids together. Imagine if the scientific community got together and said, we've established this. We don't want to research this in it anymore. We want to focus on the solution in action. And as Tim said, this is, we could have called the paper not the tragedy of climate science, but the tragedy of uh, climate change politics, because that's what it's about. The scientific community has responded amazingly well in providing the fundamental underpinning evidence, but that has not been acted on at the pace and scale required. I think another thing just to add to this mix is uh, whilst we use the example of climate change, there are many other connected crises. And so it, it is a much more challenging reality. In the case of climate change, we have an established institutional architecture that, that brings science and policy advisors and governments together through the IPCC process, through the UNFCCC process. And so the fact that it has failed to generate the action necessary is, from my vantage point, doubly troubling because policy advisors, governments have signed off on IPC science since 1990. It's not a, it's not a, it, the misnomer for some, they think that IPCC is a science organization. It's a science policy organization. Science is synthesized, summarized, assessed, and governments sign off on that. So that governments have, have understood the fundamental nature of this problem 
for the over three decades. And despite that, we've gone to 26 conference of party meetings and still we are seeing uh, governments sit on their hands in making the changes necessary. So when it comes to other interconnected crises, whether it's in biodiversity, whether it has to do with human rights and impoverishment, injustice, inequity, there are not uh, similar kind of institutional arenas within which these issues can be unraveled, understood and addressed. So if we're struggling in the climate change setting, it's even more troubling and more challenging in some of these other settings. So if, if the climate change science community can be uh, a spearhead to mobilize action on this broad science society contract in a new way, that would be profound. And we do use the notion of science in a very broad sense. We don't only mean the natural sciences. We mean the natural sciences and the social sciences, the design professions and the humanities. So we include all those who are involved in research. And the tragedy is, despite the evidence, we're seeing this compulsion to continue doing yet more research in a kind of science-as-usual manner. I think one thing to add is we, we deliberately didn't spell out what this would look like. We didn't talk about it and, and wondered, I think even the reviewers' comments wanted, what, okay, what's the plan? And, and But we, we didn't think it was our, we didn't think we had the authority, power, responsibility, however you want to put it, to make claims on behalf of the scientific community about what the scientific community should do. So this was an article that was trying to raise a, a provide a new spin on an existing problem and to try and think about what, what, how could science, how could we do things differently and what would that look like? And so we wanted to open up a political space for some debates around what option three could, should, or, or, or you know, look like if we did go down that road. So that was one of the, the things that I thought was just important to, to stress is that we, 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 we all have our own ideas, even between the three of us about how this could pan out. And, and it's, it's actually quite healthy to have discussions now about what it could mean, because there isn't an awful lot of time left. And, and we do, we all talk about the window of, of action, but I remember talking about the window of action in the last IPCC report too. And, and this is, you know, it's a common refrain, um, but now things are genuinely getting really worrying. Uh, I think Ian's right. I mean, we're, we're very conscious that we are three white middle-aged men from the antipodes. Right? And, and we certainly don't have a voice um, that, that 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 we can represent, you know, the the range of, of views. So, you know, and that's why we wanted to to embed the the article in just an evidence based approach. Of this hasn't worked. This hasn't worked. Perhaps this is an option. And and really, like Ian used the word provocation. I think that's really, you know, what we were getting to. We, we just can't see an alternative. Um, and so it's really just. You know, putting it out there, you know, what other options have we got? We need urgent transformational action. And I think Ian said, you know, that we, 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 we agree with, with um, you know, trying this, this third option, but, but even the three of us have, have different perspectives on the, 
political response, you know, and then the best political um, design. You know, I think I think we're we're quite divergent in some of those ideas. So you know, we we recognise um, that we're we're not going to that point in this paper. We're we're merely saying there's a need for radical transformational action. What is going to be the catalyst for that? Um, and, and that's where we're trying to get to. So I want to get a couple of core ideas sort of that I have and, and get your response to them. The first one is the, the sort of the, the failure of what is usually called democracy, or I would call the engaged citizen, which is when the IPCC comes out, it's your job as an engaged citizen to read all the newspaper roundups and be very concerned about the world. And then I guess that affects how you vote in 18 months or something. And that's the, and that is what we call democracy. I, I object to this as democracy. And I object to the idea of the engaged citizen as someone who, who reads the newspaper and gets involved once every two or four years to the point that I didn't even know there was a new IPCC. Believe me, I was aware of previous IPCCs, but I just like you knew, I was like, oh, great. What are they going to say? That, that climate change is happening, it's bad, and humans are, are causing it, that I had lost engagement um, because I didn't feel that there was any way for me to engage. The, the next thing is to say the reason I, you guys were the second people I asked to come on this show because there's a, um, there's a very wonky uh, writer about climate change in the U.S. who had written an article when there was some setback. I don't remember what the setback was. One of the 50,000 legislative setbacks somewhere had happened and he had written, you know, it's not gonna happen anytime soon. I guess, does anyone have any ideas for grassroots collective action? And it turns out he was kidding because I emailed him and I was like, yes, come on my podcast and talk about grassroots collective action. And he was like, no, that wouldn't work. We need policy change. And I mean, sure, we need policy change. But it seems to me that all the greatest policy changes in history have started with grassroots collective action. And I'm always advocating for people to try and start these things within their own communities. What I hadn't figured out was that you guys are in a community, the climate science community, and you guys are so uniquely placed to do gr grassroots collective action within your community of of climate science. So I wanted to see what you thought about, you know, in, in, in what respect these, these thoughts that I have about democracy, a true democracy, not just a, you know, someone who votes based on the newspaper and this idea of, you know, within your community and within your community specifically, which is a world, which is a worldwide community is the other thing to say mm. is people say that grassroots cannot change anything until it gets picked up by, you know, a big body like the UN. This is only true if the grassroots do not form solidaristic coalitions all over the world. And the great news is you guys have already formed a solidaristic coalition all over the world over the past 40 years. And now I want to see what you're gonna what you're gonna do with it. Or I, I want to yeah. hear what could be done with it. Just a couple of quick observations. I mean to start with I think you're absolutely right. It is. It's recognizing that that scientists are mothers, fathers, granddaughters. They have children. You know, they're, they're citizens. They wear many hats, and so we 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 do our science. But this notion of science is disconnected from history or from personal 
reality or from values is a, is a nonsense. And any historian of science or philosopher of science knows that all well. And sadly, far too few scientists are familiar with that. So, yes, that's part of this making real the science society contract. And yes, that notion of the engaged citizen, engage with your community, notions of democracy is fundamental. And again, comes back to the genesis of this, this article. And so the hence we've emphasized too, in our own ways, continuing to be involved at the local level with our local communities matters. And engaging with this community of, of climate change and global change sciences. Is, is really important. But it's it's very difficult to effect kind of um, radical change because it is radical change that is clearly imperative, transformational change. And it's not just yet another buzzword in, in the kind of scientific community. The underlying structural architecture of the political economy is not fit for purpose. It has led us over a precipice and we're on our way down and unless we change that political you know the political economy the architecture of the political economy we are not going to find a way out of it there's no sort of parachute that's going to stop the fall so it's radical action that is utterly compelling and the frustration for me as someone who's been part of this ipcc sixth assessment is we failed i realized too late to shine the spotlight on ourselves as the IPCC and what transformation is necessary. In a sense, the IPCC is an anachronism of the late 1980s and early 90s. It's a bit like the Soviet Union. <laughs> you know, it's, it, you know it, 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 it's not fit for purpose now. We need something that is fit in terms of the IPCC, something fit for purpose, something much more radical. And so the synthesis report that is about to be finalized that brings together all of the insights from the sixth assessment is not going to say a damn thing about how the IPCC needs to transform. What an oversight. Hundreds of scientists have assessed the literature and we have not shone that spotlight on the institution that is driving the IPCC. So, uh, you know, it is a necessity to think at a structural level and how we can leverage um, the influence and the um, capabilities and the divergent views of the climate science community in this particular tragedy to be able to affect change. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a really important point, Bruce. I, what I'd add to it is that the, even the citizens have marched. I've marched. Um, and I've been on numbers of marches on a number of things. It's not just regarding climate change. And, and there's a hope and an optimism when you're on a march that this is, how can they ignore this? But these marches occur within a political economy that we know uh, has structures and power relations that, that are, you know, find it difficult to react to citizen involvement because of the way that things are structured. Now, sometimes I think there's this, this implicit trust in the, in the nature of modernity and government that if we march, they will listen. Um, but there's, there's a lot of examples where that doesn't occur. Um, and so one of the things that we're doing with this paper is to shine a spotlight on structures. 
the, the stretches of science, the nature of science and it, it, its its relationship to society. And I've, I'm a big fan of citizen action um, and I've, I do have faith in, in grassroots resistance and, and disruption, but you've also got to be realistic that there's, I mean, we have, we have new groups like Extinction Rebellion, which just simply did not exist. Um, and they exist because there's this lack and, and because, and, and we're seeing, you know, scientists rebellion as well as Extinction Rebellion now. And it's the nature of the spectrum as, you know, in the same way that we are part of a community of scientists, we're not representative of that community. There's a spectrum of political views, some more conservative, some more radical. In the same way that there isn't any group in a society. And so one of the things that we've been trying to push, for example, is one of the pushbacks on the paper has been, this is not our job. Scientists do science, politicians do politics. You know, get, get, get back in your box, realize that that's not our call. And I think that is just, if you want to make that call, you do so. But by doing so, you're implicitly supporting the status quo. And you need to acknowledge that and own that. We're unhappy with the status quo and we're trying to use some of the, the, the small power we have to try and shake the tree and to try and shine the spotlight somewhere else. And if, as a result of that, we do see, and I do expect scientists to be more political over the coming decades, then I think that's just part of how a community responds to change when there's not a, a consensus that we should all be the same. So I think that's the other thing. If you want to be a scientist, and do science your way, that's fine, but provide space for other people to do it their way too. Yeah, I think following on from Ian, um, there's a few things. Well, first of all, that the, the climate change science community is is huge. It's a massive community. There are thousands and thousands of people. So obviously we're not going to represent um, that diversity. But I think um, there's, a, there's a naivety among many people that essentially science is a value-laden process. You know, we would not research things that we knew were going to harm. You know, it, it's value-laden from the questions you pose, the topics you research, to the methodology you, you, you choose and so on. Every step of the process is value-laden. It's naive not to think otherwise. And so to think that, that you operate in this isolated little box, it's, it's a naive view, you know. So I think... Um, it needs to be recognised that it is value-laden and, and, and really, you know, we, we only have one planet. We, we need transformational action incredibly quickly. So I think it's, you know, there's a lot of reasons for why we've had um, some, some very, very hostile pushback from within the science community. You know, obviously people define themselves in many cases by their profession and their job is status, a whole range of other things, livelihoods built into that. Um, and, and we recognise that. But, but at the end of the day, they, these are bigger issues that we're dealing with. You know, are we going to head towards extinction? We're, we're rapidly moving in that direction. So, you know, I think it's really a, a matter of looking at the bigger picture and, and, and what we needed to get there. I just wanted to, to highlight, um, you know, that there is some difference in, in the way that we look at Things and both you, Graham and Bruce, have mentioned democracy. I don't believe democracy is the solution to these issues. 
um, I think that democracy has failed. And this is a, I mean, representative democracy has failed, but I think more generally democracy as a principle, as a populist form of governance has failed. Um, and this just highlights that. So I think, you know, there's probably some some differences in, in the way that, that we think about the, the, the political solution. But I think at the end of the day, what Ian Bruce and I agree with is that we need to focus our attention now on working with local communities that have been directly affected by these issues and try to help them reduce their vulnerabilities as best as we can. And, and that's where I think the three of us are focusing our attentions. I'll, just, I'll pick up that provocation because <laughs> I, I think that Ian and I suspect you, Graham, um, and Tim and I would agree that democracy as it's manifest in the current um, practical uh, reality of it is fundamentally flawed. I mean, it's captured by corporate and political and power interests. It is um, so for me, a radical or deep democracy is something that would make that makes sense. I still, I still do have faith in 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 ordinary people. Um, I would not be keen to have um, governance by an elite of any shape or form um, or authoritarianism and um, it, securing the common interest is something that requires some kind of collective action. So you need some mechanism to enable that collective action. It, it doesn't, I'm, a, I'm utterly opposed to globalized neoliberalism, which assumes that individuals pursuing their own self-interest will secure global well-being. And I mean, for me, that's an utter patent failure and it's utter nonsense, but it underscores the, the radical challenge that we have coming back to the kind of structural architecture of the political economy, not just the economy. It's the political system, the nation state, etc., that has failed here. And when you have the Secretary General of the UN, you know, a conservative political person, these are his words. Looking when he read probably the summary of the summary for policymakers for the Working Group 2 report that came out in the February, um, he basically said, I have, how did he put it? Um, I've read many scientific reports in my time, none as damning as this. It is an atlas of human suffering and a damning indictment of failed climate leadership. Uh, you know, we'd have loved, I would have liked to have quoted that if we'd written our paper um, late last year. Um, but the reality is that this is recognized even in the most conservative corners of politics. We've had the, a recent Australian prime minister, a conservative prime minister, publish a book exposing how politics is captured by interests that perpetuate greenhouse gas emissions and irresponsible climate um, choices. So the, the, the whole system is patently and fatally flawed. And so, yeah, mm -hmm. it's a radical action that is necessary, um, mm -hmm. however one might frame that. Maybe I shouldn't have used the word democracy at any point, although I do think maybe Bruce used it first. Uh, there's, you know, there's roughly two positions on democracy in the anarchist movement, which is one, 
uh, democracy is bad. Look at all the terrible shit it's done. And two, democracy is great. And this thing that is called democracy is better described as neoliberal capitalism or uh, like uh, voting based authoritarianism or something like that. Um, I would say, uh, Tim, if you think that the answer is to work with your local communities, that's what I I would count that as democracy. Um, I, and now I'll give you a chance to respond if you want. Look, I, no, I, I don't think so. I, I don't think democracy has any place in an anarchist philosophy. Um, I, I think it's it's contradictory. So, I mean, I think what you're talking about is probably libertarian socialism, you know, like Castriatus's perspective where there might be some bounded um, notion of democracy. But, you know, I think, I think um, anything that, that gives power over to another um, is not anarchism in, in, in my view. And, look, I, I think, you know, my, I really think ownership of capital is really one of the major problems that we face. Um, that's, that's my personal view. But, um, you know, I, I, I identify probably somewhere between green anarchism and eco-anarchism. I think Murray Bookchin is probably too focused on technological solutions, but... Freddie Perlman and John Zephyrin, you know, they're more probably focused on a more just totally discarding civilization, you know, and, um, and I think that there needs to be probably somewhere in the middle. But, you know, a lot of the concepts of anarchism, you know, like um, what we're talking about, grassroots, more localised approaches like Leopold Core, you know, for instance, I think is 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 totally relevant to our discussions. But... You know, I think that, that at the end of the day, um, this idea of subsidiarity is, is really important, you know, that, that decisions at least need to be made at the scale at which they affect people, you know. So I think we're all committed to working with local communities. I mean, we're working with some very, very vulnerable communities that are undergoing rapid change, you know. So, um, you know, I feel duty-bound um, to try to have an impact through through what I do. And I think Ian and Bruce are the same, you know, that that um, you know, we're we're cognizant of the situation and and essentially we want to have impact. We want to help. We want to reduce vulnerabilities. So vulnerabilities is another interesting concept. I mean I'm working on a project looking at saying that, you know, perhaps not all vulnerabilities are bad and we look at vulnerabilities in a very normative way. But that's another another podcast, I think. But you know, at the end of the day, I think we're all focused on really trying to have influence at the local levels with small collectives of people, like you say. I think um, scale is, is a major consideration um, for for what works and what doesn't work. But um, I've probably said too much. I, well, I would just say I'm going to let Ian weigh in here in a second, but I would say, Tim, this sounds like another podcast and it's one that i would be happy to do if you want to come talk about you know these this set of ideas and where where it does or does not intersect with uh with democracy and you know sort of anarcho-primitivism and all of this set of stuff this would be very interesting to me i haven't done an episode on it yet but uh i i think uh you and i can talk about that later as opposed to during this conversation thank you tim Ian, did you want to jump in here? Yeah, just a small point that I've just been, um, I mean, it's been a really interesting discussion the way we've ended up in this uh, area thinking about democracy and, and hierarchy as well, which is sort of implicit in the idea of marches. 
is that there is a process and a structure by which marches have voice and become given power. And so it, it's about what kind of democracy do we have in mind when we're discussing it, you know, and, and, and because it occurs within structures and it is, it is constrained by those structures. You know, we have democracy as usual, just as science as usual, we have, you know, the election cycles, which we know are short-termist. And we know they're very poorly equipped to look at long-term problems, which are going to privilege future generations over current ones because of the nature of voting. So I think that there are these hierarchies that these concepts that we have uh, operate within. And I think that's one of the things that we've been trying to put the focus on is the structures, the structural aspects. And what could we do as scientists in order to just shine the spotlight on those aspects and then thinking about, you know, hierarchies as currently practiced have been complicit in perpetuating violence. On, on, you know, uh, and you know, there's a real social, social justice aspect, environmental justice aspect to climate inaction. And, and we're, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do is to, to put the spotlight on those structures which we feel are not listening to those voices. And, and, and I think it's beyond the scope of our paper. But I mean, one of the things that we're discussing here is the nature of politics and, and a whole host of problems. I mean, I, I think about inequality. You know, there's a whole lot of researchers who research inequality or housing affordability or justice who would listen to some of these themes and, and be, you know, be thinking, yeah, that my area has also struggled to gain traction despite evidence. And we all do reports that sit on shelves. And what is it that we can do in, in our areas in the short time we have where we are you know, in academia to try and have the most impact? So I want to turn the conversation now to academia because we've been talking so much about structures of political economy mostly you know we're talking about things like nation states but there are structures of political economy within academia i know the word grants has been said by someone at some point this seems to me a big question if if, if this third option is going to happen if the climate scientists are going to do something radical and transformative it seems to me that their jobs are on the line. It seems to me that their grant funding is on the line. And it seems to me that this would, and I'm sure you can tell by now I'm all for this, this would require a transformation of the political and economic structures of the scientific labor itself, which frankly, I think is long overdue. Briefly, I also want to tell you guys, if you're unfamiliar with it, there's this anarchist archaeologist collective. I had them on the show while well, I interviewed them a couple weeks ago, Black Trowel Collective, and they have put together a program of micro grants um, that is just aimed at, you know, getting people out there who wouldn't normally be able to do archaeology and letting them do archaeology. And I don't know of anything else like it. I was talking to a medievalist and he said, we need something like that. We don't have anything like that. So I would suggest that for, you know, your the, the first thing to think about is if there's ways to get money to the kind of people who uh, are going to be most affected by climate change, but are unable, who see climate science as a career 
as unattainable to them. I mean, that has to be part of it, but there's so much more and you guys will know. So what do you think about the the structure of science and whether it can, can contain or must be ruptured by the kind of ideas you're talking about? And I'll start on this one because I'm writing a paper on this right now. So it's, um, it's a really fascinating area for me. The more you look into the nature of academia, the, the, the more you, you see some of the, the issues with how it's set up. So citation equality is a really good way to think about it. You know, we routinely in every grant position something in the canon of literature, which perpetuates these hierarchies of power and in these touchstone papers. And it's really difficult for new emergent disruptive papers to actually get to break into that. So, you know, we're seeing some of the citation statistics are around, you know, the bigger papers are getting cited more, you know. And then there's other issues around sort of larger projects, you know, the grand challenges that you see that, that, that national governments do. Now, you tend to have to partner with industry, have pathways to impact, all of which is around, you know, trying to provide more in-depth knowledge to existing problem areas. Uh, and to accept the problem framing that exists in order to perpetuate in, or, or to, to, to participate in those. And the, the smaller projects can be more disruptive than the larger multi-million dollar projects that are, are collaborative. And they're really good for looking into an existing area rather than challenging existing paradigms. So it's the nature of, but on the plus side, I do think that the, impact agenda. I don't see it as all bad. I do think that a lot of universities want the staff to be public actors and to try and, and have a voice and, and to, to recognize that that is important role for universities in society. And I think the, the idea of impact in all its wider forms is part of what we're doing today. You know, we're, we're trying to not necessarily just write an article and leave it on a shelf. We're trying to make it real for people and to try and discuss it on a wider basis. So that's just some initial thoughts on the nature of science, I think. I could add a comment in terms of whilst we've made this sort of dichotomy between you know, the science society contract, I mean, scientists are also members of society. And so we have a foot in both camps of the science society contract and part of the tension and the dilemmas that we face in in dealing with these challenges i mean how do we live more lightly on the earth in an era of consumerism and materialism where it's very hard not to use a car i mean new zealand our public transport system is really pretty pathetic um so there are these tensions, and those tensions manifest in universities and in research organizations in the tertiary sector in profound ways. These organizations have been neoliberalized. The center grows more than the academic uh, area. The incentives and the processes of promotion uh, you know, are genderized. Um, there, there are all sorts of isms that are associated with the structures that are part of the very same set of structural problems that we face to change the way we live on the earth and live together. And so 
I think that to fulfill that sort of ideal, idealized, aspirational role of the academic as a critic and conscience of society is a constant struggle in every realm, especially in an age of post-truth um, and and globalized neoliberalism, including in the in the organisations that we work in. And but on a positive note, there are ongoing questions and and um, efforts to try and reverse some of the most destructive elements of those isms. New Zealand, if you look at what's happened with the universities here since the 1990s, there's been a significant shift away from some of the worst excesses of, of neoliberal cuts and, and so on. Uh, it's, it's an uphill battle. I mean, for me, it's, it's clear it's an ongoing struggle and it requires a much more critical way of thinking about our endeavors, both in our scholarship and in our practice as academics, in our teaching, as our interface with the university admin, you know, administrative organization and structure as well. Look, I don't even know where to start with this idea of um, academia and, and, um, Look, I, I, I have adjunct positions in Sweden and Canada as, as well as working in Australia, but I don't really, I'm not that familiar, I mean, I, with the nuances of the, um, the United States system. But in Australia, we, we have, well, certainly like all other places where we've moved towards a business model of universities, right? Um, and, and, but, but, but beyond that, um, there has been so much political interference in the academic institutions in Australia. And just two examples of this recently. Um, the Australian government has um, changed the fees that students pay for STEM, um, science, technology, engineering, maths um, related courses, uh, and made it far cheaper to do a STEM related degree than to do an arts and humanities degree. So it can cost you three times as much to do an arts degree as to do a STEM degree in Australia now. Um, so the, and it's this shift towards universities as vocational training institutions as opposed to critical thinking institutions um, that has, has become so dominant in the Australian system. The second example is political interference in academic research grants. So in Australia, in the last round of the, the major Australian Research Council grants, there were six grants vetoed by the minister after extensive peer review, after College of Expert assessments and so on. Um, after very rigorous processes, the minister at the last minute vetoed six grants. They were all in the arts and social sciences. One of them related to youth democratic processes in relation to climate justice. You know, th this, is, this is the context that, that we're in at the moment in, in, in higher education. And look, I mean, it's, it's much easier for Ian, Bruce and I to, to critique this because, you know, we're, we're, we're well through our careers. You know, we're, we're all at the professor level you know, we're not starting off um, having to, to negotiate this and to, to forge careers. Um, 
and it's it's just so difficult i think at the moment within these these contexts that have been so manipulated and it's like people critique capitalism as a structure but we don't have capitalism anyway we have a, a state controlled set of rules and regulations you know so i mean the this 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 joke that there's this free market that exists i mean there's obviously lots of problems with the free market anyway but you know what we have is a, is a government manipulated system and, and that's the same for academia so you know I, I i think it's 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 very difficult to be positive um in this scenario there is still latitude for working on issues to have impact and and there are metrics that are coming into play um that universities are becoming more interested in in Australia like the impact measures we have the times higher education impact measures around the sustainable development goals for instance um but they're not attached to any funding revenue streams so you know they they're a good thing to say your university is done well i mean my university ranked third in the world for life below water fifth in the world for life on land it was fantastic for a small regional little university but there's no revenue streams associated with it so it's a good thing to have but it's not core business right so there there's just lots and lots of layers on layers of of um issues but I know Ian's jumping to say something so I'll let I yeah but even before Ian I just have to jump in and say Tim that that was uh I would say roughly every two or three episodes I say that capitalism may or may not be bad but we don't know because we've never tried it so um thank you thank you for getting that in there that whatever this is it is not capitalism it it unleashes capital in a form of capitalist corporate governmental collusion uh exploitation that's what that's what it is i'll put that on a business card yeah, i think one thing i just wanted to add was um i don't know whether sort of you any of you looked off across this before you but you probably it, it will feel right to you is that if you look at the nature of academic productivity it has increased year on year on year in a way that the 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 private sector would look upon with envy by any metric you have we produce more and more articles in every field um we've generated more and more knowledge and you, know, you might have some discussions around how we package that up and and in accordance to you know to have the, the the major impact on our own productivity but as an industry or a sector academia has been choosing successfully generating knowledge the question is are we almost what form is our knowledge in and is it beyond paywalls is it almost too much how have we generated so much knowledge and yet the impacts are going south in a lot of areas there's something at the interface between the generation of knowledge and it's action that is really interesting at this point of our time in society because we've never had known as much about things as we do now and next year we'll know even more and all the time that we've been kept busy producing things maybe we need more space to reflect on what it is that we've produced and how we can use that to open up these more radical spaces rather than this sort of treadmill of production that is just keeping us busy producing knowledge and reducing the time to act on that knowledge. Yeah, and um one of the earliest guests I had on this podcast is Liz Morris who works in critical university studies and her work has emphasized the the human cost, the dreadful 
human cost of that treadmill of production um the 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 lives that have been uh only only half lived or that have been you know sidetracked or even destroyed by mental illness in an attempt to you know keep that impact score up and that is a I would say that's a topic for a whole other episode, but actually I, in fact, did that entire episode. So the uh, listeners, if you haven't listened to it, Liz Morris, Critical University Studies, uh, it's it, it was a fantastic conversation. So um, we, we've been talking for a while. This has been, this this has been a, a, amazing. I mean, as soon as I read the New York Times profile of you guys, I thought that you were the right ones, but uh, this has been beyond my expectations. Um, and at least Tim, I think, has to has to come back on the show. You'll you'll all be hearing from me. Um, so this is the part where we just move towards wrapping up. And so I always say, like, what what's left to say that we haven't said, or what would you like to leave the the listeners with? Maybe I can kick off. Um, as as has been pointed out, you know, we we share a number of common perspectives, but we have differing views, and we. Ha- are active in different ways in different settings. I've been ne- neck deep in the IPCC in the last six or seven years. And we've just come out of the sixth assessment cycle bar the uh, delivery of the synthesis report, which pulls all the reports together. And I'm more convinced than ever, A, by an intimate understanding of the messaging and the science on a level that is impossible to get familiar with unless you're in it. So, you know, as much as as dire as the information out there in the public arena is, it's even much worse when you when you're in the system and the and the sense that I have of the urgency, which is the next decade, the next 10 years, and the scale of change required that is fundamentally global is beyond reach, even with the most radical if we could get a benign dictator to wave a magic wand, I don't know that we can achieve what needs to be achieved. It's terrifying what has to be done. And if you understand the connection between climate change and all of these other critical global processes, especially in the face of what is happening in Ukraine now, and this is not, war is not a new phenomenon. The war has been going on around the world, uh, you know, long before Ukraine came forward, but because it's kind of in the backyard of kind of European um, people who kind of identify with some of the Christian whiteness of Ukrainians, it seems to be more important than the wars in Somalia and, and elsewhere. The point for me is that the intersection between issues of peace, of justice, of human rights, of environmental rights, of environmental justice, of climate change are utterly and completely interwoven. It's overwhelming for any individual to think through how to begin to make a difference on this complex web of wicked problems. But there is opportunity to do something meaningful in one's personal life at a local level. And then for me, I'm really keen to find ways to shift the dial in the conversation that is unfolding now about the seventh assessment. So while they're ramping down or ratcheting down on the sixth assessment, they are ramping up on the seventh assessment. And heaven help us if we go into yet another round of another six or seven years of another 3,000 page sets of reports that say the same kind of stuff 
with different words. And, and there's real appetite by many IPCC authors to effect change. And this has happened after the fourth assessment round, after the fifth assessment round, now after the sixth assessment round. But it takes on a life of its own. And my hope is that our modest little article is a useful point of reference and catalyst to effect some of those conversations. If we can mobilize a critical mass of voices, especially women and, and people from the global south, in the climate science community to stand up and say enough is enough. Maybe we can make enough of a difference in the dwindling window of time that is required to transform. I'll just, um, I'll go quite big picture too, I think. Um, I mean, one of the reasons why that I'm interested is that I mean, we've only ever found one planet that can sustain life, this one. We're gradually making it less habitable. We've proven why. We know the changes will go beyond our lifetime. We know those least responsible will be most affected from the global south of people not yet born. We, we, science has been very effective in proving this and, and providing knowledge on what needs to be done. And politicians have just failed utterly. As much as I think you could look at the response to global climate change has been the most impressive collective scientific endeavor in human history. The, the, the speed, the collaboration, everything you could think about it. We've also seen the biggest political failure in human history unfold at exactly the same time. And it's fine to disagree with our paper. It is a provocation. It's about introspection. But for those who do, I pose two questions. Do you think the policy response has been at the pace and scale required? And if not, what do you think we could suggest? Well, what do you what do you think we could do? Because we all want the same thing. We're, I'm convinced we're on the same side. It's just that this question is now so pressing that nothing should be off the table. Yeah, look, I think Ian and Bruce have really summed it up um, very well. I mean, I, I think I just want to emphasise, you know, that. The paper outlines two options that are untenable and one option that's unpalatable. It's not to say that if there was radical change that the first two options wouldn't again become tenable. You know, and I think, you know, when you're talking about, you know, what does this pause mean? You know, is it going to destroy careers and so on? It's not necessarily that, that those things will stop forever. It's just that we need a catalyst to create transformational change. At this point in time, we have found through an evidence-based approach that the first two options are currently untenable, but we also recognise how unpalatable the third option is. So yeah, if there is another option, we would love to hear it. Um, people have suggested some things that fit into the other two untenable options, like you know more partnerships between private industry, researchers, government. Well, we've tried all that. You know, we've already uh, tried all that. So, you know, if, if there is an option that will work, we, we'd love to hear about it. We haven't tried the third option. Maybe it will produce the catalyst for change. So I've left unspoken the fourth option. It's been in the back of my mind all along, right, which is we give up on 
on humanity. Like Ian, I think you said we're all on the same side, right? Like that side is humanity. I I don't spend a lot of time worrying about the biosphere short of uh short of complete thermonuclear devastation. The biosphere is going to be fucking fine. I mean, it's great. We've got the, you know, even if we need it, we can seed life from those creatures down there on the ocean floor living off the vents, right? What's what's at stake is humanity and if we are not all on the same side it's option four no no more people and yeah i know we don't need to save the planet the planet is going to be here long after us it's, yeah and it's, it's going to be blown up by the sun anyways like that's not the question the question is do you want the world that we live in teeming with beautiful life and filled with humans thriving flourishing understanding that life and and sharing it with one another do you want that to exist or do you not want that to exist? And the way we are behaving right now suggests that we're, we want option four. And that's why I asked you three to be on this show because man, am I tired of options one and two. And I don't want option four. I, I know people who do. I might even get the last word. I didn't mean, I didn't mean for that. <laughs> that was probably a nice end, Graham. I think uh... <laughs> You did the editing anyway, so I think you <laughs> the power over the last word. <laughs> well, then I'll just say this was uh, this was such a pleasure. Um, thank you so much. Thank you for the article. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for the provocation. And I found our conversation itself quite quite provocative. Thank you, Bruce. Ian, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Graham. I think we all, we all found it provocative too, and we I think we all thoroughly enjoyed. It.